The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. Let's open them up to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1 is where we're going to be. You can open a phone. You can open a tablet to 2 Samuel. Uh, There are also hardback black Bibles under every chair, and you can open that up to 2 Samuel. Uh, That'll be on page 254. If you've got a little ribbon on your Bible, maybe leave it in 2 Samuel because we're going to be here for a while. Uh, 2 Samuel is where we're going to be. You remember King David? Yeah, Yeah, King David, okay. Uh, King David's story is found in, uh, it's like like it's got two seasons. It's like there's two seasons of David's story, uh, chapter uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, season one and season two. And, And we finished up season one of David last spring, But like any good Netflix series, you had to wait nine months for the next season to drop, right? So that's what we're opening today is uh, the next season, season two of David, the life of David. Uh, And and just like you may have forgotten what happened in the previous season of Stranger Things, uh, right now I want to help us kind of remember where we're at in the story at the end of season one in David's life. So previously on 1 Samuel... (laughs) 1 Samuel, okay. 1 Samuel shows up in our Bibles right on the tail end of what's known as the period of the judges, okay? The period of the judges uh, is a really interesting stage in Israel's life. I'll put this verse up on the screen, Judges 21, 25. It's kind of the key verse of the book of Judges, and it goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, That's the period of the judges. It's actually one of the lowest points in the history of God's people. So uh, if you're reading through the Bible with us right now, we're in Exodus, okay? Exodus, remember Moses gets everybody out, walks through dry land, and then they wander the desert for 40 years. Moses dies, spoiler alert, okay? Moses is gonna die. Actually, everyone in the book is gonna die except for, well, he dies and then he comes back. But, 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 After Moses' death, Joshua is his successor, and Joshua leads God's people into the promised land, into the promised land, okay? Uh, Enter the period of the judges. There is no king at this point in Israel, but there are judges who, who oversee God's people, and God's people in the period of the judges are unwilling to follow God's laws. They're just unwilling to do it, and there's no king to lead them, and everyone, the text says, everyone's just doing whatever the heck is right in their own eyes. They're just kind of doing whatever they want, but 1 Samuel opens with God calling uh, a guy named Samuel, prophet, judge, Samuel, and he will lead Israel uh, out of the period of the judges, but God's people reject Samuel. They reject Samuel's leadership and they demand of him a king. God, we want a king like every other nation in the world. We want a king over us. Enter Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul looked the part. He he was a head taller than everyone else. He was a warrior. Uh, He was good looking. I mean, he kind of, he played the part of king externally really well, but his character, his internal did not match his external. 
His internal was off. He continually did wrong things and continually disobeyed God's command. And in 1 Samuel 13, God rejects him and says this, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Enter David. David, okay? Uh, When we first meet David in the middle of 1 Samuel, uh, David is a shepherd boy. He's keeping care of the sheep. He's the youngest of seven brothers. Uh, He's the runt of the litter. His own father doesn't even consider him as a possibility when Samuel shows up asking about the sons and the potential new king. Uh, But God, as we just read, is looking for a man after his own heart. And so David, as he grows, as he grows in stature, as he grows in favor, uh, the Lord gives him success in battle. Remember, he kills a giant, Goliath. He has victory on the battlefield as a commander of thousands. And David becomes well-loved and well-respected within Israel. They sing songs about him. That's how popular this guy's getting. He actually becomes best friends with the king's son. Saul's son, Jonathan, is is David's best friend. Uh, Saul actually gives David his daughter in marriage. So so David marries into the family. He marries Michael, uh, his daughter. Uh, And then Saul becomes jealous and envious of David, his fame, his fortune. And he recognizes that God's God's presence and God's favor is now resting on on David rather than on Saul himself. And so David, uh, I mean, Saul begins to uh, try to kill David. He wants David out of the picture. He sees that he's a legitimate threat to his throne and to his kingdom. And so he tries to kill him twice with a spear. Remember this? Throws the spear at him, tries to pin him to the wall two times. And then he moves underhanded and starts, uh, you know, uh, moving the pieces, trying to get David killed in battle and David killed by others. And so David runs. He starts running. And for the, the last 10 years, David has been on the run from the murderous intent of Saul. A decade he's been on the run. Okay, and for the last year and a half of that decade, David actually fled. Things got so bad for him in Israel that he fled to a city called Ziklag, which is in Philistine territory. And the Philistines are the arch nemeses of the Israelites. He says, it'd be better if I lived amongst the Philistines than with this murderous Saul chasing me. So for 18 months, he's been living with the Philistines. But in 1 Samuel chapter 29, uh, what happens is the Philistines declare war on Israel and they march. They march on Israel. The Philistines do. And they decide amongst themselves, we're not going to bring David. Even though he's been living with us for 18 months, we're not going to bring him lest he turn and fight for Saul against us. It's just not a good decision. So we're going to leave him in Ziklag. Uh, So David stays in Ziklag in Philistine territory. And while the, the rest of the Philistines march on Israel, we read at the very end of 1 Samuel these words. So I'm not even going to put it up. Uh, You can just look to the left a page. Okay. Second Samuel, just look to the left one page in 1 Samuel chapter 31. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. This is the last bit of 1 Samuel. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, 
Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Saul's dead. That's how we ended 1 Samuel. Saul is dead. His son, Jonathan, was also killed in this same battle. David is in Ziklag in Philistine territory. He knows that there was a battle, but he does not know the results of the battle. 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the other people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. So, so this man shows up, okay? And he appears to be a man in mourning. Uh, the text says that his clothes are ripped and that there's dirt on his head. These are symbols in the Jewish culture of mourning and distress. You would rip your clothes. You would put ashes or dirt on your head to symbolize that you are in mourning. And so he shows up and reports to David that the battle was lost. But moreover, King Saul and Prince Jonathan are dead. His father-in-law, his brother-in-law, his best friend, were killed. This is, this is a man who is a bearer of bad news. Now look at verse five. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Okay. First of all, is that what really happened? That's not rhetorical. No, okay? That's why I read chapter 31 to you, okay? That's not what happened. According to, to, to what we just read in 1 Samuel 31, Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer won't do it. Okay, so, so Saul takes his own life and then his armor bearer does the very same thing. But now we got the Amalekites showing up 
And the Amalekite tells a different version of the story. And some have thrown up their hands in the air saying, see, the Bible is full of contradictory stories and messages. It can't be trusted. You can't trust this thing. Throw this book in the trash. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second. Let's not be dumb. I mean, I don't want to call anybody dumb, but that's dumb. All right. It just, it just, you, can't you see what's going on here? I mean, you sure, surely you see what's happening here, right? Let me ask you, uh, I have never once in my life met a trustworthy Amalekite. Have you? No, I didn't think so. I didn't, sure, surely you see what's happening here in the text. I mean, it's very clear that this sketchy Amalekite saw what happened to Saul and he seems to be kind of an opportunist inserting himself into the story to be the brave hero who kind of mercifully gives Saul his last wish and now is in this visible state of mourning, runs to David, brings the crown, brings the armlet, uh, and likely expects to receive a reward. But you can already tell this is absolutely false because you would never make up a story that you killed the king with the chance that he might Take your head off, right? You would never make up that. You'd make up the story. Man, I saw him got shot by some arrows. It was rough. But here's the crown, man. Like, I didn't kill him, but someone else killed him. Like, that's the story that you would make up. You certainly wouldn't say, oh, he asked me to take him out of his misery. You'd never make that up. You wouldn't risk that at all. Um, but I think at some level, he's got to address the issue that they found Saul's body with Saul's sword sticking out of Saul. How do you answer that? Well, he asked me to protect him from those Philistines. And so I gave him his last wish and testimony. But remember, okay, David doesn't know any of this. We have 1 Samuel chapter 31. David did not have that. David knows nothing. So he just received the news that 10 years of, of, of being chased was over. 10 years of running for his life. 10 years of fearing every turn, 10 years of living in the wilderness, 10 years, listen, 10 years of not being able to go back home to his new wife. If you remember, he was chased away from Michael. He hasn't seen his wife likely in a decade. 10 years of being away from his land, of being away from his home, of being away from his family, of being away from the very promised life that God had made over him. It's been 10 years. It's been a decade. A decade, okay, what, what were you doing in 2014? That's a decade, a decade. And now it's over, it's finally over. The guy who's been trying to kill him is dead. The sketchy Amalekite shows up with the crown and the armlet that were rightfully David's. They rightfully belong to David now. And this is the moment that we spent all the first season waiting for. This should be the culminating moment. This is the moment where David finally gets to put the crown on his head and claim what is rightfully his. He's the king. He's the rightful ruler. There should be celebration in this moment. Saul is out of the picture. That's what we should be expecting, but it's just not what happens in the narrative. See, see when, when David hears that the man who tried to kill him and hunted him down for 10 years is now dead. Look at how he responds, verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes 
and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. See, with like urgency, like with urgency, David and his men stop and, and, and they don't celebrate that their enemy has been vanquished. Like they don't relish the fact that Saul, the guy who's been hunting us for years, is finally dead. We can go home. They don't do that. No, what they do is they, they, they rip their clothes and they start weeping and mourning and fasting until evening. And if, you were, if, if you're an astute reader of Old Testament literature, which I know many of you are, okay? Uh, if you are, the, the, in the literary structure, if you were to write this thing out and build out the literary structure, this, these two verses, verse 11 and 12, are right in the middle of the literary structure of this story, which is an important detail to note because ancient biblical writers didn't have a way to like boldface or underline, or like all caps to kind of let you know this is the most important thing that you need. You ever text somebody and put like in all caps, please read this whole message like that? That's what, that's what the biblical author does with the structure of what we're reading. So this is in the center of the story. Uh, and, and so we tend to, in modern literature, put the most important thing in the conclusion of a story. That's not true with the biblical writers. They would put it in the center. And so this is how we would have likely told the story, okay? We would have told the story about this sketchy Amalekite. He shows up, tells David, David inquires. He starts to wonder like, what? This story is not adding up. And then he deals with the sketchy Amalekite. And then at the end, we'll deal with how he and his guys handled hearing this news. But in this case, the most important item in the story is at the center. And it is the grief of David and his men. It shows us something, though, about the type of man that is a man after God's own heart. And I'll, I'll put it like this. A man after God's own heart grieves. David grieves. He grieves. Did you note that he didn't just grieve about Jonathan? He grieves about Jonathan. He grieves about the men who were lost in battle. He grieves about the state of Israel. He even though grieves Saul. He grieves. He's free after 10 years. After a full decade of being enslaved to running. And his first inclination is heartbreak. His first response is, is not hardened. We might say he has a soft heart in this moment. Because if anybody had, had a right to celebrate the demise and fall of Saul, it was David. If anybody did, right? But his immediate response is to grieve. I wonder for us, church, if we grieve the way that David grieves. Um, more often, I think the message is this, hey, what's the use in crying about it? You're not gonna change anything. So what's the point? But that's not how David responds. 
And I just want you to notice that in his grief, the first thing it says is that he surrounds himself with people. It's not just him who grieves over his best friend and his father-in-law. And it's him and his men. All of them in that moment rip their clothes, ashes on the head, weeping, mourning, all until evening. See, sometimes in our grief, we find ourselves like with this temptation to, to, to cope with the pain in some rather unhealthy patterns. Like when life starts falling apart for us, we tend to move towards things that are unhealthy and unhelpful for us as we process our grief. Like we turn inward. Did you do this? I do this. We turn inward. I don't want, listen, when, when, when stuff is going wrong, my first inclination isn't like, get my boys around me. It's like, I need a nap. I need, I need to eat something. I need to drink something. I need to watch something. I need to mute out the pain. I don't want to talk about it. You, are you kidding? No, I want to fix this. I want to mute it. I just want to get over it. I don't even want to think about it. But David and all the men who were with him grieved. They grieved. I think this is super important for us, y'all. David is a man after God's own heart because he grieved. But notice that he grieved with people. And, and so when life starts to fall apart for you, Gosh, I think this models for us that we need to surround ourselves with people. And I would say the right people. Okay, you know the difference between the wrong people and the right people to surround yourself with, okay? I mean, these were his guys. These were the guys who Saul had been chasing as well as him. They've been on the run with him. They've been with him for maybe a decade. So too, we need people who are with us, our people to surround us and encourage us and remind us of the truth of the gospel when those things are being questioned in our mind because of the pain, because life is breaking apart. I mean, you know that there is, a, you can find people who will sit on the pity potty with you. You know that? You find those guys online. You find those people in real life. They'll just kind of sit with you and it's just like, oh, woe is you. Woe is me. Let's just kind of sit on this and we'll have a little party in our pity together. But those who will sit with you and legitimately mourn, tear their clothes, weep with you, and then speak the truth that you need to hear in those moments. The proverb says that kind of friend is worth more than gold. So when life starts falling apart for you, I wonder, do you grieve like David? Are you soft and broken? Or do you just get hard? Do you get calloused? Do you just want to mute it out by whatever means possible? David and his men grieve. They grieve, okay? That's the first thing. But, okay, let's not get too deep in it there's still a sketchy Amalekite milling around. So my mind's like, what about this guy? Okay, I'm glad you asked, okay? Look at verse 13. Verse 13. David said to the young man, to that Amalekite who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said to him, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, 
I have killed the Lord's anointed. Okay, in this moment, we don't know if David suspects what happened in 1 Samuel 31. Like, we don't know if he suspects that this guy is lying. Like, we don't know any of, the text does not make that clear as to what date, what's going on in David's mind. But whether he knows that this guy's a liar or not, David responds in a surprising way, well, at least to the Amalekite, right? He was not expecting what happened because David has his head cut off at the spot, executed on the spot. He thought he was getting a government job. He got the chop, y'all. That's like what happened in this text. But I, I, I want to point that out. This is exactly in line with the character that we see David building all through 1 Samuel. All through 1 Samuel. Uh, if you remember back to 1 Samuel 24, David is hiding from Saul in a cave, and Saul just happens to go into the exact cave that David and his guys are in. You remember the story? Saul walks into the cave to relieve himself. It's in the Bible. I mean, you can read this, okay? Uh, but, but even though the men of Saul, ur, or I mean, the men of David urged David to kill Saul as he's going to the bathroom in this cave, this was David's response. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And then we don't have time, but like in two chapters later in 1 Samuel 26, David will sneak into the camp of Saul's camp at night. He'll grab Saul's spear. He'll grab Saul's water bottle. He could have pinned him to the earth right there. And again, he doesn't do that because, because he does not want to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And it's the, the second reason why David's a man after God's own heart. See, see, David has a posture of submission. He submits like he grieves, but he's also submissive. David never wanted to get the crown and the throne by taking measures into his own hands. He never wanted to do that. David knew uh, and practiced a principle that the king, Saul, should have practiced, and that's this principle. The purposes of God cannot be achieved by breaking the precepts of God. This is David's character. The purposes of God can never be achieved by breaking the precepts, the laws of God. You can't get God's will by doing it your way. That's how we might say that. And so David, on multiple occasions, has had the opportunity to force his way onto the throne by raising his hand against Saul, against the Lord's anointed king. And now, even when someone else has done it on a silver platter for him, he still wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want anything to do with it because you never achieve the purpose of God. David was to be king. That's the purpose of God. But you never achieve it by, by lying and manipulating your way into it, by compromising on the precepts of God. David submits to God, to God's plan, yes, but to God's way, God's timing, God's agenda. And I think this is unbelievably applicable to us, church. Unbelievably applicable to us. 2024, okay, new season, new year. I will wager everything that I have in my pockets right now, which is chapstick. <laughs> no, I would, wager, I would wager money on this, okay? I will wager that in 2024, uh, the greatest temptation that you will likely face 
uh, won't be like to go pick up a prostitute. I would wager that the greatest temptation that you will face this year won't be to start selling black tar heroin. I mean, I would wager that the, 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 the most strong temptation you will face in 2024 20, won't be to like bring a gun to work and murder your boss so that you can have her job. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm looking around here and some of you look a little rougher than others, but I'm just, I just don't, I don't think, I don't think that that's probably going to be the most likely temptation you will face this year. Rather, I would bet everything that I have that your greatest temptation this year will be more along the lines of, of seeing something that's good that you might want. A good thing that you might want and you might be tempted to pursue it in your ways instead of God's ways. I'll bet everything I've got that that's gonna be your greatest temptation this year. The greatest temptation isn't usually to pursue some bad thing. Because you see it and you're like, that's crazy. No, more likely it's to pursue some good thing in your way. In your way. Here's some examples, just a few I thought of. You say, I, I know God wants me to provide for my family financially. He wants me to provide, he wants me to earn. Uh, that's a good desire, right? Um, but it doesn't seem to be happening fast enough or in the amount that I want so I'm just gonna compromise a little bit. I'm gonna compromise on my taxes, right? I might, might, might compromise on my family and just overwork a little bit, work a, an extra shift, two extra shifts. And, and yeah, they'll be okay, but like, I just gotta earn and I'll make that good thing, providing for my family, I'll make that thing happen. Oh, that could be a tempting, temptation. Or here's another one. I, uh, I feel like God wants me to be married. I feel like I want, uh, everyone seems to be getting married, okay? We had seven weddings at Fathom last summer. We have eight this summer. What's wrong with y'all, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's a busy summer for me, uh, but I feel like God wants me to be married, but it's taking so long. It's taking too long, so here's what I'll do. I'm just gonna compromise just on my standards a little bit. Just on, I mean, I'm just gonna, maybe I'm too picky. Maybe I just need to, to just settle for less. Or here's one. Uh, students, okay? Students here. I have to pass this class or I'm going to get kicked out of school. I'm not going to graduate. Right? Like I'm, I'm, if I don't pass this class, my parents, they're not going to pay for next semester. Like Whatever the narrative is, I've got to pass this class. I don't have the time needed to put in all the effort necessary to pass. And, and, and so I'll just... I'll just cut a corner. I'll just ch cheat a little bit. Just a, just a, just a little. I don't know how ChatGPT works, but just a little bit, okay? It's not gonna hurt anybody. No one's gonna know. It's just a little thing. This is one of the biggest kinds of temptations in our lives, y'all. It's to pursue a good thing in the wrong way. I'll say it for a third time. The purposes of God cannot be achieved by breaking the precepts of God. Doesn't matter how good that thing is. And David knows this. That's why I think he has the Amalekite killed on the spot. 
David knows this, and he will not take the crown of Saul from a sketchy Amalekite because his posture is, I'm gonna wait on you, God. I'm gonna trust in your timing. I'm submitting to your way. He submits. Okay, finally, look at verse 17. So he's just killed sketchy Amalekite, verse 17, and David lamented. With this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah, behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. All right, so, so David grieves and he submits to God's way. But then the text said that in response to his grief, David writes a song. He writes a lament, a lamentation is what the text says. He produces a reflective expression of his grief. And that's what we call a lament, a lament, okay? A lament is a formal, this is the definition, a formal expression of grief or distress, Okay, it's a formalized expression of grief or distress. And we find lamentations, laments, all through the Old Testament. All, like some, some commentators say between one-third and two-thirds of our psalms, of the Psalter, are, are laments, are lamentations. And a lament is that formal expression of grief or distress, and it's different from kind of the informal, spontaneous, immediate outburst of grief that David and his men had back in verses 11 and 12, where they just like tore their shirts and, and started weeping and, and gnashing of teeth, that kind of idea. That's grief. That's an immediate response. But a lament is more thoughtful than that. It's, more pro- it's how you process your grief. That's what a lament is. A lament is a vehicle, hear me, for your mind and for your emotions. The immediate grief response is normally just guttural emotion. But a lament is a way to process that in your head and in your heart. So I'll say it like this. David is a man after God's own heart because he worships. He grieves, he, he submits, and then he worships. He praises God Like he produces this lament. Y'all, lament is worship. It's a form of worship. Now, uh, David's lament is in verses 19 through 27 in this chapter. And I don't have, I'm sorry, I don't have time to get into the whole uh, lament. Uh, I had a portion of it read over us this morning portion of that. Uh, and uh, and I, I would commend it to you to read on your own time. It's a fascinating and beautiful lament from David concerning Saul and Jonathan and uh, all of Israel in this, this, this uh, battle. But I do want to mention verse 26 because it causes some confusion for modern readers. So I'm going to read verse 26 and give a couple of comments and then we'll close this thing up. Verse 26, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now I bring verse 26 up because in 2024, when we read about David and Jonathan's relationship, 
It uses language that makes us question whether there was something romantic or sexual in the nature of their relationship. And so I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention this because it can be confusing. Uh, it, and I would just say this. Um, you, if you look for the sexual or romantic aspects in David and Jonathan's relationship, uh, that is reading a lot of modern presuppositions onto an ancient text. You're really reading a lot into the text. And I say this all the time when we study the Bible. Uh, When we study the Bible, the way to study the Bible is uh, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. Right, I've told you that a hundred times. It cannot mean for us what it did not mean in its context. So the comparison David is making when he compares his love for Jonathan to his love for women uh, is not the point of sexuality. Rather, it's the point of devotion. It's the point of their devotion. Jonathan was totally devoted to David becoming king of Israel. If you remember back in 1 Samuel, uh, keep this in mind, uh, Saul His oldest son was Jonathan. So if Saul falls, Jonathan is the next in the line of succession. Jonathan is supposed to be the next king of Israel. But when he starts to sense that David actually has been anointed by God to be the next king, remember what he does? He pulls out his sword and he hands it to him. He surrenders his sword and his armor and he says, hey, I see this man. I know I'm next in line, but you're God's man for the job and I'll be just right next to you. His devotion to him was unbelievable. He was totally devoted to David being king, even though he was losing out in that deal. Additionally, just clear this up, okay? Homosexuality was not practiced as an acceptable practice amongst the Jews of the time. All right, so... so if, if there would have been something going on, unsavory, as we might say, between David and Jonathan, their friendship would not have been textually lauded as the friendship we model all friendships off of in the Bible. They never would have done that. In fact, their exploits would have been exposed. I mean, we're going to get into this in some of the uh, next chapters, but there are nitty gritty details of David's sexual exploits in the book of 2 Samuel. It's not hiding that this guy was broken. He just didn't have that going on with Jonathan. David has just lost his very best friend. I mean, the friend that's closer than a brother, the very best friend that he has. And so when he writes his lament, he communicates that crystal clear. So I just, I know that's a lot of time to spend on one random verse, but I felt like culturally we have to do that work around David and Jonathan. So now here, here's how this applies to us. Uh, When it comes to David worshiping as part of his response, this lament, here's how it applies. We too don't only worship when things are going good. We don't only worship when things are going well in our lives. We are to praise God even when, and maybe especially when, things start falling apart. It's, in worship, it's actually where we strengthen ourselves in those difficult times. 
It's where we find strength. So I'll, I've shared this example my, from my story before, but before I planted Fathom, uh, I was a worship pastor for 10 years. And, and, and before I left my previous church, uh, we did like a little, you know, last Sunday I led worship and then we kind of did a little ceremony. I, I called it a banquet in first service. It was way less than a banquet. There was cake and bad coffee, okay? Uh, in the foyer of the church. And so we're all hanging out there with the church and there's a lot of people crying. I'm crying. It's just, I'm leaving a church I've been at for seven, eight years. Uh, It's been a good experience to go plant a church. And one woman comes up to just share some like kind words with me. And and she said that she, she mentioned one of the times that I had led worship over the course of seven years at this church as being specifically impactful for her. So the story goes that that in my first year of marriage, uh, my wife, Marcy, got sick. Our first year of marriage, she got sick and, and we didn't know what was going on. We started going to doctor after doctor after doctor. And after like, if you've been through kind of the medical rigmarole trying to figure out what's wrong with somebody, after a few years of seeing doctors and not getting any answers that are helpful, they begin to throw around kind of the scarier words, right? The scarier words. They started saying things like autoimmune disorders, multiple sclerosis, cancer, tumors. I mean, like big ticket items uh, for, for 23-year-olds to be handling. And so they started testing my, my, my 20-something-year-old bride um, for all these different things. All the while, I'm coming to church every Sunday and putting my guitar on and leading our church in praise and worship. Well, the one Sunday that this woman was referencing to, uh, in particular, was uh, a week that we had been in the hospital uh, because Marcy, they, they, they thought she might have a brain tumor. And, uh, and so they put her into the machine for MRI. Uh, and I even know the results, and I'm still teary about this, but, but I remember sitting in the, the waiting room at Porter Hospital while my 25-year-old wife is being checked for brain cancer and thinking, God, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't think this would go like this. And then three days later, I had to get my guitar and stand up to a mic. And I remember distinctly that Sunday getting up there with tears. And I mean, I was just, you guys could imagine, I was just a mess, just an emotional mess. And I got to the mic and I said something like this, hey, church. Uh, And they pretty much knew what was going on, okay? I said, hey, church, um, there are Sundays where it feels so good and right to sing at the top of our lungs and praise the Lord. And then there are weeks where we just don't want to. And I'm in that week. And I said this, but I need this. We, we, we need this. And then I stood about 10 inches back from my mic because I didn't want them to hear my voice cracking and I led the worst worship set of my life. I mean, seriously, musically, it was by far the worst I had ever sounded. And this woman said it was the most powerful moment of worship I'd ever experienced. Worship is where we do work with the Lord, church. We're not just like happy, clappy singing time and then you know you just move on to the sermon and then we hit chilies on the way home. It's not that. Like, yeah, if you're praising the Lord, yeah, lift your hands, sing with, with, with open mouths, with open hearts, delight in him. But if, 
But if life is falling apart, I'm telling you, praising him, praising Jesus in the midst of your trial, in the midst of everything around you fracturing is where you do work with him. And I promise you, you'll find him there in a different way than you will when you're on the mountaintop. So I don't know if you feel like there's parts of your life that are falling apart today. I mean, I know a lot of you. I know some of your stories. I know there's disease and there's surgeries and there's relationships that are broken and there's, oh my gosh, I'm about to go do a funeral for a guy in his 20s. I'm leaving right from here to go do that. Listen, you don't die of old age in your 20s. You die of something tragic. This is our reality in a broken world. And I don't in any way today want to kind of diminish the difficulty that you might feel or the pain that you might feel in whatever brokenness you might be experiencing. But I'm just telling you, in those times, the temptation to respond in less than biblical ways is enormous. But in light of a terrible loss, his his best friend, his comrades in battle, his nation, even even his father-in-law who was twisted. David responds. He responds in grief. He responds in submission. He responds in worship. We see a man after God's own heart. And I'm thinking this week and and processing this week, and and David, if you know your scriptures, is actually um, a shadow. He's a type He's a a mirror for us of, of a future king who would come. And here's what the prophet Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, the truer and better David. Here's what he said. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. I love David because he points us to Jesus. And in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, hear me on this, I worked worked out these, these, um, these words specifically. In Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he has built a floor at the bottomless pit of our grief. You find yourself falling In Jesus' resurrection, there's a bottom. There's a floor. And he stands with you there. Just as he stood with David on this fateful day, we have a God who is intimately familiar with what it feels like for life to fall apart. Because when he was in control, when, when, when he was not required to feel pain, 
He came and he lived and he died and he rose. And therefore we can grieve. When life is falling apart, only in those things can we find peace for today and hope for tomorrow. Would you join me in prayer? Father, it's, it's good and right and strange and almost a little jarring to begin a new series, a new book with this kind of message. And yet, Lord, I think if we're honest, myself included, I think if we were honest people, this is our story. It's not all up and to the right. It's not all glory. It's not all top of the mountain. It's not all ecstatic joy. It's, it's valleys. It's receiving bad news. It's being tempted to take things on our own initiative rather than painfully and sometimes excruciatingly slowly waiting on you. Lord, we want to we want to know why you call this guy David a man after your heart. As we study this book together, I, I want to know what it is that made this guy something. I'm just seeing glimpses of it even in chapter one, Father. So, so I pray for us today where life may be falling apart, where things may be broken, where bad news may be being anticipated or being have, uh, having been received, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that you are with us. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. That's our true hope, Jesus. So encourage us with that. Lift our heads with that. Lift our hearts with that. Even if we're in the pit, Lord, I pray that as we turn to worship you now, we might worship from a posture of just vulnerability and reality. So God, we trust you with this. I trust you with this. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.